What I just described to you is not being built by anybody. Mm-hmm. Because why? That currency would immediately go start to, to go down. So what does it require? It requires people of enormous wealth and privilege to not become, in the words of FDR, traitors to their class, but to become traitors to their game. To decide that the game they won, whether it was through birth lottery or hard work or whatever they want to attribute it to, mm-hmm. is a game that must end. And it must be replaced with very easy off-ramps for everyday people by new incentive systems that encourage things like the flourishing of life and the dignity of all people. Mm-hmm. And, and we can do that now. All the tools are there. Mm-hmm. It's just going to take some really bold leadership. Ready to learn why cash flow and compassion are not mutually exclusive? Each week, brand strategist, speaker, and author Maria Ross will introduce you to the trailblazing brands and leaders who embrace empathetic tactics to reap huge rewards. You'll learn about winning teams, brand wins and fails, unforgettable customer experience, and bold leadership decisions fueled by compassion. You'll get the latest trends and research, discover practical ways to infuse more empathy into your work and life, and hear from innovative market leaders who've smashed outdated models and redefined success. Welcome to the Empathy Edge podcast, the show that proves empathy isn't just good for society, it's great for business. How do we shift from an individualistic culture that incentivizes power grabbing and consumerism into a more community-driven culture where everyone gets their needs met? And yes, innovative leaders can still make money and succeed. It's possible if we get creative, build new systems, and create new incentives for a game we ourselves invented. Today's very philosophical conversation with Rahman Frey will have you thinking about how you can be part of the solution and still achieve your ambitions. For the last 20 years, Rahman has built businesses and communities in the Bay Area, bringing people together around meaningful conversations about art, technology, religion, politics, and philosophy. He was a founder or co-founder of Frey Norris Gallery, Epicenter Arts, Dispatch Labs, Good People Dinners, and Camp Ernest. Rahman has served on the boards of several organizations, including the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts. As an event producer, public speaker, moderator, and interviewer, Rahman enjoys improvisation and unscripted dialogues. Civil discourse, vulnerable conversations, and deep inquiry are common threads in all of his work, so you know I was down with today's conversation. Today, we touched on everything from how community building encourages empathy to making creativity in the arts more accessible to everyone to sharing our random thoughts on capitalism, Western culture, and how to shift society from me to we without feeling like we're missing any opportunities. And in fact, how doing so will unleash innovation and allow all people to thrive on a massive scale. Get ready to question your assumptions about creativity and our current form of capitalism in a good way on today's show. Take a listen. Welcome, Rahman, to the Empathy Edge podcast. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you today about community building, about incentivizing the right 
or the, the best behaviors of us as human beings and so many other things around economic models and just different ways of thinking about how we thrive and how we make a living in this world today. So welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on, Maria. I'm glad to be here. So you have a very um, diverse and storied background. You've been an entrepreneur, you've been an advisor, you've been an investor, you've been a speaker, but I, I see the common thread across at least the work you're doing now is really about building communities and creating spaces where people can come together that might have diverse viewpoints or diverse experiences. What, what brought you to that kind of community building work in what you're doing and what, what keeps you passionate about it right now? Uh, yeah, good question. You know, the, the first thought is really my childhood. That's what brought me to it. Um, I grew up essentially on a hippie commune. And when I was a little kid, I was running around. This was in Coconut Grove, Florida in the tropics, you know, gathering mangoes and eating them until I felt sick. And when I, when I ran into an adult, I made a natural assumption that they were a friend and they wanted to play. And I could see how I've kind of uh, carried that over in the rest of my life, you know, that, that very affectionate, warm, welcoming, you know, build a longer table, not a higher fence kind of thinking. Um, and it has been a common thread in all the things I've done. It was uh, how I tried to be. I, I found the art world culturally to be kind of a, a pretty pretentious place. And, and the feedback I got from a lot of people who were really sincerely interested in art was like, I find this really alienating the way I'm being treated. And so I really tried to make our gallery, which I co-founded and ran for 10 years, uh, uh, an unpretentious, warm, welcoming place. And, and that just that just carried over into uh, you know everything that we have done since. Uh, you know, when I left the art world in 2012, we started something called GP Good People Dinners, which is basically like a movable social club um, built around meaningful conversations, civil discourse. And, you know, the, the assumptions around creating uh, social chemistry are that it's additive. And that's so common, you know, uh, we can, I think, kind of uh, blame Martha Stewart a little bit for that. Uh, you know, she in, in her world, everything's got to be perfect if you're going to welcome someone. And I think in the real world, and actually a strength of kind of California style hospitality is simple, unpretentious, but but done with great love and care and the ability to remove, actually, all of these inhibiting interference patterns that we carry with us without realizing it. So when we started doing dinners and overnights and retreats and events, uh, I did my own and I did them for different companies. Uh, I really tried to pay attention to creating two things. One, a prompt right when you walk through the front door to think more deeply about something to get you out of that churning mindset of achievement. And then two, to create a context that's fully off the record. There are no recordings of any of our dinner or conversations or speakers. To create a place that was off the record, informal, and, and really a place of psychological and emotional safety. Mm -hmm. And that worked beautifully. I mean, we've done 250, 300 events since then. Um, and now we finally have a, a physical space uh, where we do most of our events uh, So right now. I love it. I love it. And that, that idea of psychological safety is so important. You know, we're hearing a lot about it in terms of the workplace and 
and enabling people to do their best work and thrive requires that they feel psychologically safe. And it's mm -hmm. not about perks. It's not about salary. I mean, those are all important, but those are not the things that make people feel psychologically safe. It's right. the social and emotional interactions. It's how mm -hmm. they're treated. It's how they're seen, heard, and valued. And that's what enables people to innovate and thrive. And that's like right. I said, do their best work. Now, again, you come from an entrepreneurial background. I'm curious if you feel that entrepreneurs with backgrounds in the arts become more empathetic business leaders later in life. That's a good question. Uh, you know, I, I'd love to just say one last thing about what you just shared. I think there is this tricky thing. Imagine you're starting a business or you're in management or something about creating psychological safety. And that tricky thing is a person's persona as they show up in a work context is completely hinged on their ability to provide necessities for them and those they love. And that's where you get that tricky part, that tricky part of like, how do I make you feel so comfortable that your most creative self can show up, as you just said, right? And you don't, you don't ever slip back into, well, if I speak up, I will become disadvantaged and I may even be asked to leave. Um, and, uh, and, and I've thought about this a lot. I have a friend, uh, Jordan Burton and Matt Walsh, who I've been uh, helping with their company now, which is all about hiring and interviewing and creating those contexts of appreciation and psychological safety. And one of the miraculous things that they do is thinking through that interview process when you have deep empathy and you really care and you're really just fascinated by the person you're interviewing and interviewing, you can, you can only hire one in 20 or one in 50 candidates, but you're doing your company an enormous service. If every other candidate leaves that, that interview process with their dignity and with a sense of feeling appreciated. Um, and, and it's amazing how uh, rare that is. I think in, in interview processes. Um, and then as for your, your, your other question, so I have, I have been involved in the arts really my entire life. Uh, from, the, from growing up, my parents were uh, art dealers and they dealt primarily in antiquities from Asia. Uh, then when I arrived at college, at Bard College, the liberal arts college, I knew many artists and I was a published poet at that point. I considered what career might grow out of becoming a poet. Um, and now I just think of, I think of that impulse as the creative impulse and understanding sort of creativity theory, you know, thinkers like Stephen Johnson, who wrote Where Good Ideas Come From, or Creativity Inc., that recent book by Ed Catmull. Um, there was one book by uh, Peter Sims called Little Bets, which made a very big impression on me and led me to a bunch of other uh, uh, thinkers in this area. And so now I think of creativity writ large creativity of software developers, the creativity of chefs and cooks, which I work with constantly now, the creativity of visual artists, which I, I interact with much less now. Um, and, you know, there's a, a I think this, this, this psychology of deeply and emotionally engaging with great art, whether it's novels or visual art or music or whatever it is. Mm -hmm has sort of a proven effect of enlarging our circle of empathy. Absolutely. I mean, that in the book, that's one of the primary habits that a lot of people enjoy that I included in the book to strengthen your empathy was to consume art, stories, documentaries, right. music, 
whether it's telling a story about someone who is not like you, or it was created by someone who has a different worldview right. than you, you can right. practice the, what would it be like to be that person in a very safe environment and start exactly. flexing that muscle so that when you need it in, in the quote unquote real world, you can use it in the workplace, in a contentious contract negotiation and whatever it is, you, you, your mind, your muscle memory can go to that of like, and, exactly. but also your mind, like you said, your worldview is expanded because you're consuming these stories that, uh, that you never knew about. And they're more than just right. statistics. They're stories about other human beings. And yeah. I do love what you said about, um, we tend to box ourselves in with the term creativity. And I, you know, this, this podcast has proven to me how creative data analysts can be, how creative, very, very, you know, left brain, logical tech leaders can be. And so, you know, it's, it's expanding our definition of, uh, you know, beyond just the arts in how do you, no matter who you are, or where you come from, how can you almost um, build that creativity muscle as yeah. well as, as, as a, how can I figure out innovative approaches to solving mm -hmm. problems? That's creativity. It, it, even, like you said, even if it's a developer or, a, or an instructional designer or the traditional visual artist that you're yes. thinking of. It, you know, it definitely is a capacity any of us can learn to cultivate. And uh, with it comes sort of strong opinions lightly held. And that's the other half of it. So the first half, like you were saying, is sort of the consuming. You, you reminded me of Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God, which I read when I was in high school, actually. Uh, it was a pretty heavy book for high school. Um, and it was a very different lived experience at a very different time and an African-American woman in the old South and incredibly poignantly written and took me very far away from my lived experience as a kid in Miami. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so that's half of it. And then the other half it, greatly undervalued is we are all intrinsically creative. We poop. Most of us like sex. We eat, we sleep and we make stuff. Mm -hmm. And we have alienated ourselves in weird cultural ways from each of our own creative capacity, but also from each of our own ability to become appreciators of creativity. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think it's really important if, if there's maybe a thing for your listeners to take away from our conversation, it's important to be bold in your engagement with other people's creativity. Mm -hmm. And that is, that will, that will also build your muscle to be more creative yourself. Um, and don't get shut down. If you, if you go to a fancy restaurant with a Michelin star and you don't like it, say so. Right? And if you love it, say why yeah. um, and, and build that up. You know, I, I get very, uh, uh, I have a short fuse for elitism and pretentiousness when it comes to creativity. Yes. And I, I, I would encourage other people to also develop that short fuse. Right. Right. No, it's so true. It's so true. It's, you know, often people, ha for whatever reason in society, the arts in, you know, the big A, capital A, mm -hmm. unquote, the arts seems like this elitist, wealthy pastime. Right. And yet the arts, small A, are all around us. So, so in, why, did, why did in, that happen? I know. That's, why that, does that happen? Okay. Exactly. So this kind of leads into the other part of the conversation. <laughs> uh, cap, so capitalism writ large is a system of capital growth. When we talk about economic growth, we're talking about the growth of this imaginary thing. You can't hand me. 
mm-hmm. called Capital. It's, a, it's an imaginary game that we all have learned to play. Mm-hmm. And when, you, when the game is Capital Growth, it seems to be, to me, to be like an out-of-control algorithm. And it sort of devours the quixotic and puts out the generic. And so it has, a, in my opinion, kind of a deleterious effect on art because what it cares about is making it scarce and alienating because then people pay. Mm. And, and so when art is liberated from that, right? A great example. So right now I feel that one of the reasons I left visual art and I'm, I'm way off on the periphery now and I don't really have anything to do with how the art world operates is I was kind of grossed out by how it seemed to me to run at an elite level as an unregulated security market. Mm-hmm. And that was not why I got into it. And that was not what I enjoyed about it. In fact, it made me pretty miserable as we did better and better. Uh, and so, uh, you know, that, that form of creativity got taken over. There's other forms of creativity where you just can't make a living. Right? Right. <laughs> po- poetry, right? right. So, uh, wh- so what happens to poetry? You still get a lot of diverse and quixotic forms of expression because there's nothing in it other than that catharsis for you and for the audience. Mm-hmm. And so I think we could rethink the ways in which we want to limit the role of economics and commerce and maybe experiment with forms of economics and commerce. We've, we've only known one form. There's one orthodoxy. And this is a 101 thing that I think most people are unaware of. Uh, just like most people don't, I think, reflect very much on Descartes and Shakespeare and the Bible in the sense of them reifying a sense of unique and eternal self, right? Which is a very Western thing and it's not an Eastern thing. I think a lot of people don't really uh, reflect much on neoclassical economics, which is the one orthodox way to think about markets. And so the good news in that is there is an infinite number of possibilities for how economies and commerce could work that we haven't tried yet. Mm-hmm. And that nobody is trying because if you prove it could work, you, it, it would create something. This is Kate Brayworth, uh, an Oxford economist something that was uh, distributive and regenerative by design, operating within what she calls the the green donut, the donut. And so it would lose that scarcity that the current system operates from. Right. And so what you would, what you would end up with is less and less concentration of wealth, not, no, not there would still be inequality. And I think that's fine actually, but you would have fewer and fewer billionaires. It would get harder and harder to become exponentially wealthy as an individual. Mm-hmm. And it would become impossible to be poor mm. because the abundance that we have created as a species means that right now, in my opinion, poverty is a political choice. It is no longer, there need be no poverty in the world. We have enough. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we have every piece of technology we need. It just hasn't been applied. You not you're not saying that. you're not saying it's the choice of the people who live in poverty. You're saying it's a choice of the system we've created. It's a choice of the right. system we live in. I just want to That's clarify right. that for no. the listeners yeah. so yeah. I don't start getting no. <laughs> getting ads no. at me. Yeah. No, no. I, I'm I, when I say that when I say that I'm literally echoing the exact words of some of the more progressive members of Congress, right? Who who have said very publicly that po- at this point poverty is a political choice, right? And we as legislatures are choosing 
to keep people in poverty. Mm-hmm. And so for me, there is an echo of feudalism there. Because if you if if half of the American population is living paycheck to paycheck mm-hmm. and can't afford an unexpected $500 expense, mm-hmm. then they are easy to coerce into work that they don't want to do. Mm-hmm. And, and so it is a Hobbesian, you know, vision of human nature that in order to get us to be a productive and industrious society, we need to be coerced through the carrots and sticks of basic necessities. And there, there are alternatives in Western philosophy, like Rousseau, you know, who believe that, no, actually, if you allowed every human being to take for granted the basic necessities of them and those they love, I, I think there would be a decompression period to get over the PTSD of constantly scrambling. But after that period, I think the evidence is strong that most people would choose to become far more uh, intrinsically motivated members of society. Mm-hmm. And that the, we would see the manifestation, a, a huge growth in the manifestation of human potential because people would be doing things voluntarily. Mm-hmm. I don't think almost everyone's going to stay home eating Cheetos, playing video games and getting stoned. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is the conservative fear mongering. Yes, exactly. Exactly. It was the same argument you hear about now about why there's a labor shortage is because, well, people are relying on the, you know, employment benefits they're getting and they don't want to go back to work. Like, yeah. Mm, well, Maybe, but that's because the systems in which they go to work, they're earning less. So that's the problem. The problem is not that they're making an informed choice to say, I'm making more money by taking unemployment and staying home. The problem is, why is it that if you actually have a job, you're making less than if you were, you know, that's the issue, right? (laughs) I I think we would, I think America has the the potential to become in the next few years, in my opinion, a civilization in in the true sense of that word for the first time. And what Mm. would that mean? That would mean probably something like universal healthcare, a $20 minimum wage, and some form of universal basic income. And Mm -hmm. in that scenario, a lot of incentives get flipped. Right now, command and control hierarchies is what everyone is uh, fully acclimated to. Right, they don't know any other way. They don't know any other way and they've never mm-hmm. experienced any other way. So what happens? The, the person, say the blue collar worker, is uh, performs their best work when they're scared, mm-hmm. right? Because they're used to a coercive system. And if they had the chance, they could step away from an abusive boss, which is very common, or an abusive spouse or an abusive context, because wherever they go and whatever they're doing, they know they can take that, those basic necessities for them and their children for granted. You know, And I think if, if we could achieve that in the next five or 10 years, you would see a blossoming of our society like you've never seen before. And once people can take basic necessities, it's, it's sequential. Once you can take basic necessities for granted, you can then start to widen your circle of empathy and think, I would like there to be forests. I'd prefer they don't all burn down. Mm-hmm. But as long as you're like, I don't know where if my baby's going to eat next month. Exactly. I don't, fuck, I don't care about these forests. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so. I think that's, I think that's the fundamental division between a lot of people is, is your people aren't quote unquote wrong by how they're viewing the situation and whether we're talking politically or societally or culturally, 
there's a reason they think what they think. And it's not because they're an evil person. It's exactly. because their, their priorities are different. Their priorities, yeah. like you said, you know, the people that are in the coal industry are not waking up every day saying, how can we destroy the earth? Well, maybe exactly. Some are, but but they're saying these people mostly need the jobs. executives. Mostly the executives. <laughs> but, but, but the people in the coal towns, I, I've I've talked to a lot of folks about this, about how it's not just about we'll just change jobs, right? That's what all of us from the outside looking in say. No, it's like just get retrained. But it's part of their culture. It's like their father worked in the coal mines and their grandfather worked in the coal mines, and the coal mines built the schools yeah. and the coal mines built the community. And so, so it's, it's, it's understanding where people are coming from because they're, like you said, they're trying to cling to, well, what else am I going to have for a job? I have kids. I've heard this, you know, on interviews, I have bills to pay. I have a mortgage to pay. I have kids to send to school, hopefully have kids, you know, I can send them to school. And so, yes, I care about the earth, but right now my time horizon is this year, the next five years, the next 10 years to your point, the next month. to meet the basic necessities. Yeah, and so when you get when you get people in that w- mode of thinking, generally, and this is true for every one of us, me and you included, our IQ goes down. When you put us into fight or flight, mm-hmm. we lose the ability to reason, and we lose our creative capacities, and mm-hmm. we lose our ability to expand that circle of empathy. Right. And so I was actually I wanted to share something with you, which I thought was. Maybe a little contrary to the the, the focus of your your uh, show here, which is, I think those people have perfectly adaptive ways of thinking and being to the system, and have no alternative. And there, and so I my experience has taught me honestly. I, I sometimes I joke. I'm like I'm I'm one of the biggest startup failures you'll ever be. I have given 110 percent of energy in my last penny over and over again to these things. Why am I failing so much? And why are the people I respect most who would strike me as intelligent, competent, hardworking, uh, and with their heart in the right place, why do I see them failing so much? And when I look at the ones that do succeed, they're incredibly, utterly focused and often calloused, callous people. They don't, they don't adhere so much, and this is my experience, this may not be yours, they don't adhere so much to any kind of moral compass or moral North Star, they adhere exclusively to the prerogative of capital growth and the system that they inherited. So they're highly adapted to the systems that they found themselves in mm-hmm. because doing so will make you wealthy and will make you influential and will make you a success in all of the ways that our culture celebrates success. Yeah, and right? I think and that's... So I, I think ahead. that's the point of like the work I do. And, and the reason I wrote the book is that there are people out there who are changing that definition of success mm. and they're, they're becoming successful in spite of being empathetic, compassionate leaders. <laughs> right. Right. And so, so I'm that in spite is the in problem spite of is the problem. And so, but that's, that's the whole point of this work at a macro level is yeah, let's right. talk to those people and let's shine a light and show that there is a different way. There's a different system. There's yes. a different belief. There's a different construct. And, you know, my, my mantra is, you know, cash flow, creativity, and compassion are not mutually exclusive. That's and true. we've created systems of success of capitalism, of whatever you want to call it, yeah. that that negate that. And my point is, but humans created those beliefs. Not they're not laws of physics. That's right. 
They're so not we, written into the fabric of the universe. They're yeah. not. And so we can change them. That's right. And, and that's the hopefulness I, I see in what you're saying too, is like there, you know, when you look at what's going on in the world today, you have a very hopeful view of like, I see us being on this renaissance of changing the culture in the U S and not a lot of yeah. people are there right now. They're very we need, discouraged. Yeah. We, we actually, there's an actual, I think there is a profound existential urgency um, to inventing, experimenting and inventing in new systems. And this is where uh, I, I am a little stuck and I feel personally a little discouraged. Uh, when I look around at the most altruistic, compassionate, capable people, almost all of them are holding the line. They are the soldiers of harm diminishment. They keep the despots in check. They keep the oligarchs in check. They fight with through old systems like unions and stuff like that. They fight for healthcare. The people who are driving women out of Texas right now to get to go to neighboring states, those people. And, and so everyone, it's an obvious sell in our deeply entrenched uh, market-based thinking. It's an easy sell to say, they don't have water, we will give them clean water. And it, it, and, and this is where I'm stuck and what hurts me. And I would love any listeners to reach out to me if they think they have some ideas here. Uh, Desmond Tutu, oh, there's a famous Desmond Tutu quote where he said, you know, I spent my entire life fishing, you know, struggling people out of the river. And if I go to my grave without ever going upstream and finding out why they're falling in, I have failed. Mm. We are not truly investigating that up, those upstream inflection points. And if we do understand them, and this is what my book manuscript is about, if we did understand it, we don't have the courage, political or otherwise, and the deep compassion to risk rendering what we're used to obsolete. Mm -hmm. Instead, we have a paradigm that says, get rich like Bill Gates and become a philanthropist. Right. That's the but, only way. But first get rich like Bill Gates. But first get rich like Bill Gates. And so what <laughs> happens is 99% yeah. of people aspire to be Bill Gates, never right. get there and live these opulent and indulgent lifestyles by global standards mm -hmm. and, 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 and a lifestyle that the entire world fetishizes and that is totally destructive. So we can create an economic. So I want to give a, 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 an idea that's hopeful. And yes. just, just to help people to grasp what we could invent, which is the final chapter of the manuscript that I was working on. And we'll talk about and, the manuscript in a second, folks. So hang on. Sure. So, <laughs> so, so there was maybe, uh, uh, I, I tried to give about a dozen ideas I had, but I'm one person and my ideas are incredibly limited. The, the best way to generate ideas for new incentive systems is to get a very diverse group of people with very diverse expertise and synthesize that knowledge to make uh, really thoughtful bets. But here's one idea. Our understanding of money, and this is true of every currency in the world, uh, until cryptocurrencies, uh, which are pro very problematic for me, but I, I was in a business that, that, that worked with them for a bit, um, has been the value of a currency is attached to our confidence in a country. And our confidence in a country has mostly correlated to that country's influence. And that influence traditionally came from military might. So, you know, in a, I think in a very direct way, money, as we have known it, 
is an expression of militarism. And money could be an expression of anything. So uh, Planet Labs, I think it's just called Planet now, has put up these modular um, satellites all over the world. And those satellites are now capable, for instance, of monitoring the health of the biosphere. You can get objective data uh, encrypted on a blockchain or, or similar, encrypted data on here's how the world's forests are doing. Yep. Now imagine a currency that was pegged to the health forests so that the, the, the extrinsic value of that currency was in alignment with the intrinsic fulfillment we get as a biophilic species. We, I think a, a wonderful keystone for a sort of universal sense of ethics is to be biophilic, to, to want to promote the diversity and quantity of life on our planet. Mm -hmm. You could then have market economics that in every way hinged on the health of life. Right. What I just described to you is not being built by anybody. Mm -hmm. Why? That currency would immediately go, start to, to go down. So what does it require? It requires people of enormous wealth and privilege to not become, in the words of FDR, traders to their class, but to become traders to their game. To decide that the game they won, whether it was through birth lottery or hard work or whatever they want to attribute it to you, Mm -hmm. is a game that must end and it must be replaced with very easy off-ramps for everyday people by new incentive systems that encourage things like the flourishing of life and the dignity of all people. Mm -hmm. and, and we can do that now. All the tools are there. Mm -hmm. It's just going to take some really bold leadership. Yeah. And I know you're doing some work around putting together your thoughts around incentive system design with a manuscript that you, you've, you've been working on. Um, can you explain to folks what incentive system design actually means? Can you break it down for us like, you know, in its most simplistic form? Sure, I mean, I, um, I actually uh, uh, spent a lot of time thinking very specifically on like how I was gonna define. So first of all, incentive system design is, some, is a term I made up. Mm -hmm. I wanted an umbrella term that went beyond traditional economics. I think economics and commerce dominates the behavioral nudges we live with mm -hmm. um, and that, that blend into the background of our lives. Mm -hmm. um, and, and those tend to drive us towards an ever greater pace of transaction, an ever greater pace of production. Um, you know, the, uh, it, it's interesting to look at a system of incentives and think, what's the absurd conclusion if things continue on their current arc? And the absurd conclusion of capitalism as we inherited it is one guy probably owns everything. We all work for him and we all buy and sell 24 hours a day. And I can say in my lifetime, we have moved significantly, especially in the developed world, in that direction. Mm -hmm. That is not, in my opinion, compatible with a fulfilling, fulfilling human fulfillment. And I think community, coming back to the beginning of our conversation, is intrinsically necessary for most people, even introverted people. And there can be different forms of community. Community is a, a sense of belonging that transcends the transactional. Mm -hmm. Transactions may come out of community, but they are not the point of community if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a byproduct. And I would be curious to your, because this is something I've been 
wrestling with, with, with people I know, and I've been discussing is that, you know, I know I have listeners all over the world, but specifically in the United States, we're a very individualistic culture. Right. You've yeah. seen the fruits of that in the last 18 months, two years. Yeah. How do you shift an entire culture from individualistic to more community-minded mm. without, while, while also allaying the fears of people that that leads to authoritarianism? Or right. it leads, or it leads to something dark, right? How yeah. how can we actually make that shift when the legacy of and you know it could it could be our country, it could be another country we're talking about, but um, how do you shift an entire culture that was that its sense of pride is its individualistic nature? Yeah, the rugged individual. Yeah, how do you shift that to something more? It's not just about me; it's about my community. Cause I, we see bright lights uh, of those people in the world. Like do, you, yeah. you're that you're doing that work. Other people I featured on this show are doing that work, but how do we, and maybe you don't have, you know, it's a big question I'm asking of you, but I'm no, curious great, as to your thoughts. Question. Yeah. Because yeah, it's, okay. how do we start to shift that consciousness to start to take pride in our collective sense of community rather than our like pioneering well, spirit of individualism, so, so a, a sense of civic pride is mm -hmm. not, alien to American culture. Mm -hmm. And we have had high points with all of our faults and our history, our, our, our aspects of horrific history that, and their legacies that we still carry with us. There have been times where people took enormous pride and took care of themselves, uh, took care of each other. Um, you know, so to some degree, the period following World War II, after everyone had a huge existential scare and then was living with the threat of nuclear Armageddon, we, America was a much more magnanimous culture then, but that magnanimity was eroded and eventually, I think, for the most part, has been obliterated by the incentives of capital growth. Mm. Uh, and, and so that the dark answer to your question is civilizational transformation is usually the result of upheaval, upheaval and catastrophe. It's something like the Bolshevik Revolution or the Cultural Revolution in China or you know, a million other scenarios. It is rarely the result of a, a peaceful opt-in solution. But I believe it is our moral responsibility to be part of building and then offering those peaceful transitions. And there are plenty of historical precedents there as well, including the invention of the notion of democracy, right? When, when demo it was a little group of everyday people, no one special, just like me and you, you know, or me, I'm, you know, I'm not a big deal. And, but they were like, you know, this whole, like, you know, you get your power from the gods and you drown in opulence and the rest of us are your slaves. I'm not digging that anymore. <laughs> right. Like maybe yeah. there's a better way and we can govern ourselves. Right. And I guarantee that when they went with those ideas into the larger culture, everyone said, you're nuts. That's crazy. Don't waste your life find the most benevolent uh, members of royalty and support them because that's realistic. That's practical. And so what are we doing? We're adapting to the legacy systems we inherited. Mm -hmm. We are at a historical moment now as a global civilization where we cannot do that anymore. Physics is going to shut us down. Mm -hmm. And so we have to not just have, no, don't replace Leviathan with a new Leviathan one right. size fits all for all people. We have to experiment 
with dozens or hundreds of other ways of shaping human behavior at scale in a loving, opt-in, suggestive way, right? Mm -hmm. If everything around you right now is suggesting you're inadequate, so buy this, right? We can have a system that instead nudges you in the direction of your most pro-social impulses. That is possible to invent. Mm -hmm. And so to, to some degree, I mean, on, on an everyday level, my work in the world right now is building community, right? As, as Doug Rushkoff says, find the others, right? That was essentially my takeaway too from uh, a conversation I got to have with Robert Sapolsky, find the others. Then once you find the others, comes the hard part, the build. So we talked about that before. We talked about how almost all of the capable, industrious, caring, loving people in the world are like holding the line. They're in harm diminishment mode. And what we need is we need a few, it could still be 90 something percent harm diminishment, but we need a few people to break away from that and say, I'm not gonna put up fires. We got plenty of people doing that. I'm gonna figure out how not to light fires. And I wanna be part of that group. Whoever that is, I want to be part of that. That's my that's my real life's work at a deeper deeper level. At a at a more superficial level, I throw great dinner parties. Right, <laughs> right. We have great chefs and we have great speakers, and we right. bring people together for retreats and we help people to reflect and connect and trust each other. But all of that is just setting the stage for the the deeper thing, which right. is a build, which is a risk, which is a probably gonna fail thing, which is deeply entrepreneurial. What are other ways we could live? where everyone gets to thrive and how do we make that a better party than drowning in opulence on your 10th yacht at your third mansion? <laughs> well, and I think, you know, you, you hit, as we, as we kind of close this out, you've really hit it in the work that you're doing is, and it's so similar with the work I'm trying to do is it's not enough to have the moral argument that we That's need right. to be community minded, that we need to be empathetic, that we need to care about each other. It's like, okay, people are people. Humans are humans. Let's find a way to incentivize the behavior. And it doesn't right. mean, and it doesn't mean someone's faking it if they respond to that incentive. It means you're getting them there. That's and that's, right. you know, the point of my book is once you get people to adopt an empathetic mindset for whatever reason, they're right. there and they they like the response. They can actually start to see the benefit of that point of view. And they can't go back. They can't unsee, right? But mm -hmm. you're you're getting them across that chasm of of just try it, <laughs> just see what happens, right? And Soften. so exactly. And so I love that that way of of thinking about it is like instead of thinking how we force you know how do we force people to be nicer no. to each other, right? Coercion is not going to work. It, it, coercion to stop coercion is not really going to no. work. But how can we incentivize people? to think of others, to be more empathetic, to think about the community and not just themselves. And, wow. and folks like you and folks like that I profiled in the book and, and companies and organizations, they're there. And, and we just have to, we have to harness that energy a little bit better to do what you're saying, which is actually change the system. So I, I'll give you another little piece of good news, uh, kind of riffing on what you just shared. So for 10 years, maybe 12 years, I sold art to very wealthy people. I sold them things they didn't need. And many of them, especially in the Bay Area, had become much more wealthy very quickly. And a conversation that is never had is how alienating and burdening that transition is. I once talked with someone from uh, Harvard Business School 
at a conference uh, who shared that a meta-analysis of pro-social behavior amongst people who become significant, get significant bumps in wealth and power uh, showed that pro-social behaviors go down dramatically. Uh, if we had that conversation, if we rallied around with love and support people who shoulder the burden of a, a great inequity at that end of the spectrum as well, we could help to guide that and become uh, responsible stewards in inventing new systems. And I think the majority of people, not everyone, uh, but the majority of people would find a life of more modest means rooted in compassion, community, trust, belonging, celebration, that they would find that more fulfilling than drowning in opulence, as much as that's celebrated in movies and blah, 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 you know? And so I think that's the good news. I think that it is possible to present a better party of love and belonging and appreciation and trust. Um, and I hope more and more people, and I know many people doing this, I hope more and more people will join us and the other communities that I'm aware of who are kind of building these things outside of cities. Mm -hmm. um, and, and my ambition, and I know Karen shares this, is to bring that back to the city. I hope one day we'll have a building in the city as well, and we'll do the exact same kind of programming there, you know, to help people break out of those cultural uh, aspirations towards opulence and, and break into a sense of uh, mutual aid and responsibility. I love it. Raman Frey, um, can you tell folks how to find out more about you? Sure. Um, uh, our new physical space up near Yosemite is Camp Ernest, camperernest.com, uh, C-A-M-P-E-A-R-N-E-S-T. And if you're interested in the dinners, gpdinners.com is the other website. You can find me on social media too. Yep. And we'll have all your links in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for this really rich and, and quite philosophical conversation. I could talk to you longer, but I know we're out of time. Thank you everyone for listening. Um, if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate and review it and share it with friends. And always remember that cash flow, creativity, and compassion are not mutually exclusive. Question the system. Thanks for listening. Take care and be kind. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Empathy Edge. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to share the show with others who want to redefine success and change the game. For more on how empathy makes you and your brand more successful, visit TheEmpathyEdge.com. There, you can download a free guide outlining five business benefits of empathy and a free sample chapter of Maria's book, The Empathy Edge. Until next time, remember that a more empathetic world starts with you and leads to tremendous success. Success.